Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Today, we're in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through chapter 20, verse 3, the return of the king. And uh, I, I hope I do justice to being excited about this, because this is what we've been building to, toward for nearly a year now. Can you believe it? Uh, we're going to end this series on September the 5th, and it will be really a legitimate year that we've been in the book of Revelation. So please turn with me in there in your Bibles. I hope you hear lots of pages turning or keys clicking or however it is that you access the scriptures. Before we dive in... Let's briefly recap where we've been. The book of Revelation can really be broken down into three main parts. Part one is chapter one, dealing with things past. And this was the Apostle John's vision of the exalted Christ. And what an amazing vision he had. Part two was chapters two and three. That dealt with things present to the Apostle John. That was the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, both to encourage them in intense persecution and also to exhort and challenge them to be faithful and to correct them in some key areas. And then part three, the part that we've been in the longest, chapters four through 22, deals with things future, things prophetic, things yet to come. It is the consummation of the kingdom. And this, the purpose of this third part, really, is to give believers, that includes us, the advanced history, and what a remarkable the thing that is, that we know what's going to happen before it happens, of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, becomes king, with a view towards calling them to faithfulness and godliness. And so there's a sanctifying factor to the book of Revelation. The more we study it, the more we have the vision of the exalted Christ the more it will drive us toward and call us toward holiness and sanctification. This happens through three waves of judgment in the book of Revelation. We we encountered seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bulls. And again, thankfully, we've made it through (laughs) the three waves of judgment. And the result of that was consequently the destruction of Babylon, which led to, we saw several weeks ago, heaven's hallelujah chorus which was sung for three reasons. Number one, God has judged his enemies, God is reigning, and the bride is ready. That was the first part of chapter 19, which brings us now today to the next part of chapter 19 and the monumental event known as the second advent of Christ. And on the chart, it looks like this. We got the red arrow there showing us that this is at the end of the tribulation and before the battle of Armageddon. And it is the answer to the prayer of Isaiah in which he said in Isaiah 64, 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. This is a prayer prayed thousands of years ago. Here in Revelation chapter 19, it is finally being answered. And as commentator Dave Guzik eloquently stated, he says, There's a sense in which everything before this in the book of Revelation is an introduction to this revelation to this unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now he returns to earth in power and glory, and I get goosebumps as I read that. How about you? Now, in speaking of the return of Christ, it's important for us to differentiate between his return and the rapture. 
because we could easily get those confused and we must not do that. So let's look at that chart again. Remember that on this side of the chart, the red arrow pointing to the rapture of the church, that is before the seven-year tribulation. And the return of Christ on the right side of the chart happens after the seven-year tribulation. And so by way of comparison and contrast, let's talk about the difference here. We see where they are different in terms of their timing, but let's talk about the difference in their character. First of all, the rapture, it comes in the air, whereas the return, Jesus comes to the earth. In the rapture, Jesus comes for his saints. In the return, he comes with his saints. In the rapture, believers depart. In the return, unbelievers depart. We'll talk more about that. In the rapture, Jesus claims his bride. In the return, he comes with his bride. In the rapture, he comes to reward. In the return, he comes to judge. The rapture really is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but the return is mentioned often in the Old Testament. And so one of the things I would point out to those who tend not to be futurists or tend not to believe that Jesus comes in a posture of judgment, there are many, many, many Old Testament scriptures that point and prophesy to the fact that Jesus will return as judge. The rapture, there are no signs of his return, but many signs of the return in the second coming. In the rapture, Jesus brings blessing and comfort, but in the return, he brings judgment. In the rapture, it comes in but a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. In the return, it is visible to the entire world. No one's going to miss that. And in the rapture, the tribulation begins, and in the return, the millennium begins. And to sum it all up, if you just want to condense that all into just two basic sentences or statements, in the rapture, Christ comes for his saints. In the return, Christ comes with his saints. And again, think in terms of those two red arrows prior to the tribulation and after the tribulation. So you all with me? All right, let's press on. With those distinctions in mind, let's read today's text. It's long. It's longer than I would like it to be, but there was no good place that I felt to divide it. And uh, we got business to attend to with the millennium coming up, so we need to press on. So we're going to read right now Revelation 19, 11 through 20, verse 3, the last battle between Christ and the forces of evil resulting in their defeat and destruction. So it says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, the Apostle John, he writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Bad idea. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. 
And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray and ask God's help with this text today? Father, even just reading it, it is overwhelming. There's just so much here, and it is so beautiful. It is so great and also alarming. Uh, But God, we need your help today with um, just understanding and communicating and applying. So Holy Spirit, would you come right now and minister to each one of us exactly where we are and help us to hear what we need to hear and then help us not to merely be hearers of the word but to be doers also. So we ask for your help right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this passage can be broken down itself into three main parts. We have the conqueror, the conquered, and the conquering. So let's look first of all at the conqueror, and rightfully so. This is going to be the longest section. The others are going to go short and fairly rapid. But uh, this one we got to camp out in for a while because it's about Jesus. And you just can't talk about Jesus and gloss over it. It's, it's too important and it's too rich. And so first of all, we're going to look at his names. The names given in this text, there are four wonderful names of Jesus. And the first of these names is faithful and true. He is faithful and true. Verse 11, John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. This name, faithful and true, it should communicate for us that it is Christ's righteous character in contrast to that of the Antichrist. You know, going through the tribulation, we've had to talk about the Antichrist and his deceptive ways, how he made a peace treaty with Israel, and then at the midpoint of the tribulation, he breaks it. He rules by means of deception of all kinds of false signs and lies. The devil himself is a liar. That's what he does. And a large part of what it means to follow Jesus and to be victorious is to overcome lies with truth. And so far be it from the body of Christ to in any way be marked by deception and by lies. Thank you. This is in contrast. Jesus, who keeps his word and rules, it says, in righteousness. And I love what the Apostle Paul wrote about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, for all of the promises of God. Now think about that. How many promises has God made in his word? Oh, my word, it's so, so many. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That is so beautiful. Every promise of God finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And this reminds us that Jesus not only tells the truth, but guess what? Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so that title, Faithful and True, it is important also because it also reminds us that Jesus, just as he fulfilled the promise of his first coming, guess what? He's going to come again just as he promised. Just as Jesus fulfilled the promise of his first coming, so he will fulfill the promise of the second coming. How do we know? Because he is faithful and true. So if you get excited about Christmas, and rightfully so, the babe in the manger, 
we believe that he absolutely came in the flesh just as it was prophesied, then we ought to, just with as much zeal and confidence, believe that he's going to come again in the flesh the second time. We must be ready. So that's the first of the four names attributed to Jesus in this section. The second one is a mystery. Don't ask me what it is, because I don't know what it is. Because he says himself in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Which might cause us to ask the question, well, what's, what's the point of that? I mean, if you have a name and nobody knows what it is, is there any point to having the name? It doesn't really click. It doesn't, it's a mystery name that no one else knows. Well, here's the thing, and I think it's awesome. I think it's really beautiful. The mystery name that only Jesus knows, that no one else knows, this communicates the ulti- that ultimately unfathomable, <laughs> easy for me, unfathomable, you try it, all right? The ultimately unfathomable nature of Christ. Now, what does unfathomable mean? <laughs> Can I just stop saying it? Um, it means this, that we've learned so much about Jesus just even in our study of the book of Revelation, right? After all, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I've learned so much about Jesus through this. But guess what? There's so much more. He is infinite. And, you know, we're going to hang out for all eternity in heaven, and we will never get to the end of mining all of the truths about the character of who Jesus is. Isn't that awesome? I think that's the significance of this name that no one knows but Jesus himself. He is, I'm going to try it one more time, unfathomable, okay? And I love that. I don't want a God that I can explain everything about him and know everything about him because that's not a very big God, is it? My God is infinite. And I will never, ever come to the end of knowing and appreciating all that there is to know about him. What a wonderful thing that is. Eternity is going to be awesome. And uh, I hope you're right there with me. Next, he is called, number three, the word of God. Look at verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God, which is very appropriate. How does the apostle John's gospel begin? John 1.1, in the beginning was the... Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, so this concept of the Word was has always been something very important to the Apostle John as it was revealed to him to write in the scriptures. And of course, when, when something is a word, what are the what's the purpose of words? They're to explain, they're to express, they're to describe. And so here, Jesus, the Word of God, that's what's happening here. The Word of God communicates that Christ reveals the Father. Jesus said, when you've seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. Jesus gives expression to the heart and mind of God, for he is the word of God. And so in case we had any question about who is this coming back on the white horse, it's been settled right here, all right? It is the word of God, which is Jesus. And as we connect the dots, we see that to be so. Name number four in this passage, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Look at verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that title communicates his ultimate sovereignty. Now, who is more king than the King of Kings? Nobody. Good. You're a good good audience. Who is more Lord than the Lord of Lords? Nobody. He has rulership over all things at all times. There is no one higher, no one greater, no, ultimate, no, no one has any more authority than he does. 
And as we'll see in just a few moments, a picture that I love in this passage, this is why he wears many crowns. But we'll get there in just a moment. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So those are the four beautiful names given to Jesus in this section. He is faithful and true. There's the mystery name that we don't know. There's the Word of God and King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what I would like to do now is just to to plant a question for you to take home with you to talk about over lunch. Which of these names is most meaningful to you and why? Which of those four names is most meaningful to you today and why? A great question for you to discuss as a family. Um, I hope you have some fruitful conversation with that. So next, the text gives his description. We've had his names. Now we move on to his description. And the first thing that it says about him is that he comes riding on a white horse. Where are my horse people? My ho- Yes, we have horse people here at First Baptist Church. And I know you love your horses. Horses terrify me, okay? So good for you. Um, in a little while, we're going to talk about the fact that this army comes back riding on white horses. And I'm going to need some horse training in that because, again, I know nothing about horses and Hopefully, there's a little crash course on that in heaven. But he comes riding on a white horse. Look at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Quite the contrast to how Jesus entered Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion. Am I right? What did he ride then? Palm Sunday. Not Palm. Yes, Palm Sunday. Okay, he comes riding on a donkey. And the significance of one, a king coming riding on a donkey was that he came in peace. But church, that is not what we see here in chapter 19. He is not riding a donkey. He is riding a white horse, which in John's day was the practice of victorious Roman generals. And they rode in these wonderful processions of victory through the streets of Rome after they had been marvelously victorious in war. So here with Jesus, gone is the donkey of peace, and now he comes on the white horse of war and victory. So, white horse communicates that Jesus comes in victory to judge and make war. The text can't say it any more clearly, can it? The first time he came as Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The second time he comes, he will come as judge as the lion of Judah, to defeat evil and make everything as it should be once and for all. Isn't that wonderful? Everything that's broken, fixed. Everything that's wrong, made right. That's what the one coming, riding on the white horse is coming to do. And so in this text, Jesus is described as riding on the white horse. Number two, the second thing it says about him is he has eyes like a flame of fire. Have we seen that before in Revelation? Do you remember where? Way back, probably last September in chapter 1, when John had that vision of the exalted Christ. Let's look at verse 12 right now. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And so back in chapter 1, remember this picture? Kind of freaked you out a little bit at first. Like, that's not what I picture Jesus as, okay? But these are the different elements that John saw in his vision of the exalted Christ. Now, remember, that's not what Jesus looks like. When we see Jesus, I don't think he's going to look like that. That's what Jesus is like. 
And so what John sees in his vision points to the realities of who Jesus is and his character. And so I don't think we have to worry about, well, i got to keep a safe distance from Jesus because he's got that sword coming out of his mouth, all right? And I don't, I don't want to get too close. We don't have to worry about that because this is a vision with symbols that point to what Jesus is like. And so it is with the eyes that are a flame of fire. This communicates that Jesus, he sees everything. He sees everything. Now, how does that make you feel? Um, on one hand, I think it's very comforting. It's very comforting that Jesus sees everything because you know what? He sees your hurt. He sees your pain. He sees the injustice that's been done to you. Those of you who have been abused, and, and he, he sees, he knows, he cares, he loves, he has full, he's full of mercy and compassion, all right? He sees everything. But on the other hand, um, it's terrifying, right? That Jesus sees everything. There is nothing that is hidden. He not only sees our actions, but he sees our hearts and our motivations. Nothing escapes his eyes that are like a flame of fire, which, what is he coming to do right here in our story? He's coming to judge. And so the one who sees everything is perfectly equipped to judge and to judge righteously. So very appropriate that he has these eyes that are like a flame of fire. Next, the conqueror is described as, it says, on his head are many crowns. Look at verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or crowns. You all know that, that old hymn, right? Crown him with many crowns. All right, this, this is where that comes from. All right? And what does it mean? What does it mean that he has many crowns in the ancient world? It was customary for a victorious ruler that when he defeated his foe, guess what he would do? He'd take his crown and put it on his own head. So in regard to Jesus, Jesus has many diadems. Why? It communicates that Jesus is ruler over all. King of kings and Lord of lords. Remember I mentioned back when we were talking about the title, how it connects with the many crowns, the many diadems. Here it is. Jesus has defeated all competing rulers, all competing foes, and he has taken their crowns, for he alone is king of kings and Lord of lords. The first time that Jesus came, what kind of a crown did he wear? He wore a crown of thorns. But this time, he comes and he wears many diadems, it says, as we crown him Lord of all, just like it says in the song. Next, number four, Jesus is described as being one clothed in a robe dipped with blood. Look at verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Now, whose blood is this? Some people think it's his own from the crucifixion. I don't believe that. I don't, I don't think that's the case. This isn't his blood. Then whose blood is this? I believe it's the blood of his foes, of his vanquished enemies. And that fits as we go back to chapter 14, verses 19 through 20. Do you remember the image of the wine press and how it talked about with the battle of Armageddon, what's going to happen? Okay, chapter 14, verse 19, it says, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So I believe that the, the blood that is on Jesus' robe is actually the blood of his enemies, meaning that this image communicates not a picture of redemption, 
but of judgment. Because that's what Jesus is coming to do at this point, right? Here in Revelation 19, the time of redemption has passed. The time of judgment has come. Does that bother you? It, it, it nags at me a little bit. You know, this picture of Jesus has the blood of his enemies on his robe. There's just something. It's, that's not a nice picture of Jesus, is it? And again, it might be one of those things that cause us to question the character of God and say, what kind of God is this? Well, let's review for a moment what kind of a God this is. This is a God who has been so very patient, so very gracious. As humanity has rebelled against their creator, spit in his face and said, we don't want you or your way. We're going to do it our way. We have sinned against our creator, the king of kings and Lord of lords. God could have instantaneously done away with all humanity. But instead now for thousands and thousands of years, he has been patient and merciful. And to top it all off, he himself provided the way of salvation by giving his son Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. His own son's shed blood is the only way by which we are able to be saved. So what kind of God is this? He's a patient God who pleads with us to turn from our sin and be saved. But again, he is a righteous God. And the day will come when he says enough. It is time to make everything right. It is time to do away with evil, to defeat it once and for all. And it will be banished forever and ever and ever. So it is precisely because God is faithful and true and rules and righteousness that he must defeat evil, and that is what is represented on that robe dipped in the blood of his foes. All right, one more description of the conqueror in this passage. Number five, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now, again, I don't think we have to worry about this literal sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. This is what John sees because it is a description of what Jesus and who Jesus is. The sword coming from his mouth is, in fact, a symbol which communicates the power of God's word. The power of God's word. Commentator Warren Wiersbe, again, he's one of my favorites, but he says it this way. He says, just as the word was the Father's agent in creation, right? How was the universe created? It was spoken into existence. So the word is his agent for judgment and consummation. The sword of the spirit which comes from his mouth. We'll see that sword in action when we get to the conquering in just a bit. But that's what right now we'll leave it there. What the text has to say about the conqueror. He gives his names and his description. Now, we're going to move much, much more rapidly through the next two. Next, the conquered. Those defeated by the conqueror at the second coming, there are three groups mentioned here. The first are the armies of the earth, those who still are alive somehow during all that happened through the three waves of judgment and the tribulation, who still have their hearts hardened and they're coming against God, they're coming against Jesus, they have formed and they come to do battle, it says in verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And again, in light of what we've just learned about the conqueror, uh, you, you can do a more foolish thing than to come to do battle against the one who rides on the white horse. So, 
The first group, that is conquered, the armies of the earth. The next group, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Look at verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Now you remember, we've encountered two beasts during the tribulation, right? The first was the beast from the sea. The beast from the sea. This is a human being, but demonized, greatly, greatly demonized, who becomes the Antichrist, a political ruler who has, again, satanic authority to rule. Then there was the beast from the earth, another human, demonized, a false prophet, religious leader who has satanic authority to speak on behalf of the Antichrist. And the text tells us in the second half of verse 20, check this out, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. They're the very first two to be cast into hell, where they will suffer torment forever and ever. Next on the list of those conquered, number three is Satan himself. We look at verses one through three of chapter 20. This maybe caused you to scratch your head a little bit as we read it earlier. I'm still scratching my head. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Now, this isn't the lake of fire. This is that abyss that we saw, um, I believe, back in chapter 9, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Isn't that fascinating? When Jesus returns, Satan is not immediately cast into hell with the Antichrist and the false prophet. Instead, he is chained and put into that place known as the abyss where there were, have been demons who have been incarcerated until certain strategic times in the tribulation. Um, but after a thousand years of Satan being in the abyss during this a thousand year millennial reign of Christ on earth, um, he's going to be released again. Why? It's not the way I would do it, right? I would just say... Enough, you're done. Go with the false prophet and with the Antichrist, but we'll talk much more about that in the weeks to come. God has his purposes and his ways, and guess what? They're higher than Chad's purposes and Chad's ways, and we're all glad for that, all right? So those are the conquered, the armies of the earth, the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan. How appropriate is it that we spend this much time talking about Jesus and we spend this much time talking about them, okay? So they chose to oppose the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and they are soundly defeated, now, let's talk about how this happens, the actual conquering. The first thing to note, and this is where I get really excited, all right? You ready to get excited? Jesus doesn't come back alone. Instead, he brings an army. Look at verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, like the bride that we talked about, were following him on white horses. So, who's in this army that's returning with the Lord? I believe it has four divisions, right? Armies are very organized, and they have different divisions, and this army has four divisions. Um, division number one is the church. It's us. We're raptured. We spend time in heaven. If we're here, when Jesus has the rapture, we spend time in heaven, but then we come back with Jesus. We come back with him. We are part of this army. We're division number one. Just as we talked about the bride last week, right? Jesus, the groom, comes and takes the bride to be with him where he is. He's prepared a place for us, and then he will return again. So 
This is one huge army arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, riding white horses. And again, I'm going to need a little help with the horse thing, but we'll get there. But I can't wait to be part of this. I, I haven't been on many winning teams in my life. I mentioned to you, I was probably arguably on the worst Cadillac high school football team in its history in 1989 when we went 0-9, all right? You can't do much worse than 0-9, and, and I was part of that. So, um, but I get to be part of this victorious army that comes back with Jesus. I'm going to win something finally. So that is the, the army, first of all. Division one, the church. Division two, we have the deceased tribulation saints, those who are martyred and those who die for other reasons during the tribulation. Um, their souls go to heaven to be with Jesus. They return. And then interestingly, we don't have a lot in the scriptures about this, but this Daniel 12 passage is interesting. Um, we have Old Testament saints who themselves are raised to life at the end of the tribulation. Again, there's some, some cloudiness about that. But then Division 4, where there is no cloudiness, angels. Jesus talks about him returning with his angels in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. So um, in the conquering, Jesus returns not by himself on the white horse, but with this massive army that includes us. And so I think that's fantastic. The next element of the conquering is the battlefield. And we've already experienced this back in chapter 16, verse 16, where it said this. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called what? Armageddon. And you'll remember that Armageddon is a compound Hebrew word, Har Magadon, which literally means Mount Megiddo. Mount Megiddo overlooks um, a valley that runs from Megiddo to Edom. It is 30 miles wide. It is 200 miles long. The valley is also known as the Valley of Jezreel. That might ring a bell with you. The plain of Estrelon, Armageddon. Napoleon called it the perfect battlefield, and throughout history, over 200 battles have been fought on this very site, but none of them as significant, clearly, as this battle that is going to take place at the second coming of Jesus. This is where Jesus conquers his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon, which leads to the third element of the conquering, which is the weapon. Now, don't you wonder, as we come back on those white horses with Jesus and we're in his army, what kind of weapons is he going to give us? You know, um, do we get some kind of like lightning bolt thing where we get to go, or I don't know, that's the only thing I could think of. But what weapons does the army bring to the battle of Armageddon? You know what the answer is? We get no weapon. We're an army with no weapon. We don't need a weapon. Why would we need weapons when we got Jesus, Right? says in verse 21, And the rest, which is, refers to the armies of the earth, those foes of Jesus, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Only one weapon needed in this battle. Only Jesus needs it. Only Jesus will wield it. It is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So, truth be known, Armageddon isn't really much of a battle, is it? How many of you remember when Mike Tyson was in his prime? The boxer? There'd be all these build-ups to Mike Tyson's going to fight so-and-so, and so-and-so would come out in the first round to fight Mike Tyson, and Mike Tyson would literally, like, throw one punch, and the guy would get knocked out, you know? And that's kind of the image I have here of Armageddon. It's like, all oh, this army build-up, oh, we're coming, and we're coming against Jesus, and lo and behold, Jesus, all he needs to do is speak a word. Speak a word, and it's over. It's over. 
2 Thessalonians 2.8 refers to this. It says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Again, not, not much battle here, but there is great carnage. Great carnage that is described in verse 17. Again, uh, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he called with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. Now, supper. We talked about that last time, didn't we? What was that supper? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Greatest party ever thrown, right? Jesus the groom comes back for his bride, takes us to heaven, the place that he's prepared for us. And the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great reception, I believe it starts in heaven and it spills over into the thousand-year millennium of Jesus' reign here on earth. That was the marriage supper of the Lamb, but this is a very different supper. The great supper of God. The great supper of God where birds of prey come down to devour the dead bodies of all Christ's defeated enemies. And that's a grotesque image, isn't it? But anytime we get repulsed by some of these grotesque images, need I remind you that the reason that there are these grotesque images is why? Because of sin. This is a picture of sin. Sin is grotesque. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to this carnage. And so when we are tempted to kind of be friends with sin and to compromise here and to cut a corner there, may we be reminded of this grotesqueness that's like this is what sin becomes. Look at verse 18. Those birds come to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Um, As you can see, that word flesh is repeated five times in verse 18 alone. It communicates the fact that, listen carefully, those who choose to live in a fleshly, sinful lifestyle in opposition to God will ultimately experience the destruction of their flesh. You with me? Those who choose to live in a fleshly opposition to God will ultimately experience the destruction of their flesh. It really comes down to this. It's like, which supper are you going to be a part of? The marriage supper of the Lamb? The greatest party ever thrown? Or this supper? The great carnage of Christ's defeated foes. So we've looked at three important elements of the return of the king this morning. The conqueror the conquered and the conquering. Let's wrap up with that all-important question. How should we then live? And I think for me, overwhelmingly, the thing that stood out to me the most about this passage is the familiar truth that we read in Hebrews 4.12, a verse many of you have memorized, but we need it afresh and anew. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Again, what was the weapon, the only weapon that Jesus needed to defeat all of his foes? It was what? The word of God. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And my Bible tells me this in Ephesians 6.17. It says to us, believers, to the church, we are to take the helmet of salvation and we are to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
question for you this morning. Do you want to be victorious against anything and everything that come against, comes against you? You'd be a fool to say no. I'm assuming that you're all very smart people, and the answer that you would give me is absolutely, I want to be victorious in all circumstances. Then you and I must become skillful at taking the sword of the Spirit, as we are instructed, and then wielding the sword of the Spirit. We must read the Word. We must study the Word. We must journal the Word. We must memorize the Word. And most importantly, we must do what with the Word? Obey the Word. And in doing so, you will be able to unleash the Word as the powerful weapon that it is meant to be. Jesus modeled for us this for us in the wilderness when he was tempted, did he not? Satan himself comes against Jesus to tempt him, and he is no match for Jesus and his weapon, which was what? The word of God, the spoken, memorized, hidden in his heart word of God. And here's the thing. I'm, I'm not against, and this sounds like a Pastor Mike thing, and it is because it's true and it's good. I'm not against Christian authors and reading what Christian authors have to say. But that is no substitute for the word of God. Okay? You have the very word of God in your laps right now. Why would you take three or four or five steps backwards to listen to what someone else has to say when God himself wants to speak to you personally through his word? And in that word, there is power to overcome, power to give you victory. And so what a gift. What a gift we've been given in the scriptures. May we utilize that gift to the absolute fullest. So, all comes down to this, chapter 19. Jesus will return, literally, visibly, suddenly, dramatically, with cosmic signs on the clouds and a display of glory with mighty angels, with his bride to the Mount of Olives in triumph and victory. And church, may we live today in light of his glorious return tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are energized this morning by the reality of the scriptures and your, your second coming and all that that means. We long for the day, as Isaiah did, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We long for you to come and make everything right because there is so much right now that is wrong. We look forward to that day. But in the meantime, may we remember that part of the reason you haven't returned yet is because of your great mercy because of your great patience, because of your desire for everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. So may we be about your business right now. That's what this time is for. Make us fruitful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.